Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Nothing personal. Word of the day. Today is February 28th, 2022. This is David Sampson. I'm back. I'm not back. I'm totally delayed. Got into the airport at Buenos Aires. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've been doing the past week. I appreciate that everybody's been listening to the mailbags and to the Sampson sit-downs we did. But we're back doing a live show here on Monday the 28th. I expected to be doing it back from New York. Instead, I'm still in Argentina, got to the airport, and all of a sudden the plane was delayed by, wait for it, 12 hours. So what do you do? You head into the city of Buenos Aires from the airport, and you get some food, and you're fine. And then you get another announcement, one of those texts, plane delayed by 23 hours. So nothing I can do. It's a full day delay but we're still doing a show from a hotel room somewhere in the heart of the city of Buenos Aires. But there's so much going on that Coke and I said there is zero chance that we are skipping a show. So forgive the audio, forgive the video. I'm wearing a nothing personal shirt right here if you can see it. I don't know if we're even going to show the video of this because Coke can't really see me or hear me. He's not even in my ear. So you just have to stay with us because we're going to get right into it. Because delay is a double entendre. It's not just the delay that I'm feeling right now. It's also the delay in the Major League Baseball season. Because today is the deadline that was set by the commissioner that if there is no deal by the end of today or an unspecified time today, then there will be a delay. Get it? How many times can I work delay into a sentence? A delay of the season. So we've been talking about this collective bargaining negotiation for quite a long time because the owners knew that this was coming. The players knew this was coming. The players started saving money. The owners started saving money. I want to start with the money side of it so I can explain to you about paychecks and missed paychecks and what that means. Players get paid between April and October. So if there is no season, players are not getting paid. The union has what is the equivalent of central fund revenue, which is what the owners have. Central revenue comes from national broadcast deals. It comes from licensing deals. It comes from MLB.com. That is any revenue that comes in that is not team specific. It goes into a pot and that pot is split 30 ways. The commissioner decides each year what he's going to distribute to the teams from that pot of money. And he holds money back. Every year he holds money back. And it was always frustrating as a low revenue team because you want as much cash as you can get. We're going to talk a little bit about franchise economics later in the show, 
I promise for those of you turning in to figure out what happened with Jeff, I will get to that. So there's an amount of money that the league has. They call it a war chest, which given what's going on is not a word I would like to use, but that is actually what it's called. It's what to do on a rainy day when you need money in a labor situation. So that is how MLB has money. The players have the same thing. Players get licensing money. Players have money that comes in through the union. They get union dues from all players in the union. Yes, whether you are Max Scherzer or a player making the minimum, you are paying dues into your union. And for years, the union builds up that sum of money, that quote unquote war chest, and then distributes it to players during times of a labor stoppage. MLB has not had a labor stoppage since 1994, 1995. Everyone is calling this a labor stoppage, which it's not yet because there have been no missed games. An off-season labor stoppage, I think we're just mincing words. But if we start missing games after March 31st, it's official. Labor peace is now no longer a streak in MLB. And what the union has been doing is been paying the players $5,000 per month. But starting April 1st, they are going to increase that in theory, so we're hearing, to $15,000 a month. Now, you're going to say that's a pittance, that's not enough, that doesn't cover salaries. All of that is true, but that is still how the players will have a bit of a paycheck if this continues. In terms of the delay of the season, the biggest thing you need to get a deal is a deadline. The owners set a deadline of February 28th. The players said, we don't agree with that deadline, but we will negotiate to that deadline every day, multiple times a day for the past week. So the owners, the players have been in Jupiter, Florida at the old spring training. Actually, it's still spring training for the Marlins, but it's where I used to be for 15 of the 16 years in Florida. Little trivia, 2002, the Marlins did spring training in Melbourne, which is where they started their spring training. But as part of the deal to get the Marlins back in 02, we wanted spring training back in Jupiter because it was convenient for us. And we thought it would be better for the fans to drive from Miami only to Jupiter, not to Melbourne. So we have a facility with the Cardinals. That's a dollar coca. They have a facility with the Cardinals. And that is where the owners and the players have been negotiating. So you're seeing a lot of video. You're seeing a lot of tweets. You're seeing a lot of discussion about why are they meeting every day now up against the deadline when they could have been doing this in December, they could have been doing this in January. But the way it works very simply is there is a duty to bargain in good faith between management and a union, in this case, owners and players. And you show that good faith, not by having meetings for the first 43 days of the lockout, not by having meetings every day during the course of a lockout or during the course of a strike, but it is an overall body of work that is looked at if there's litigation as to what was good faith in terms of proposals, in terms of counter proposals, in terms of frequency. And when there is a deadline, one of the factors is did someone walk away from the table and say, yeah, the deadline is coming up in a day or in three days or a week, and I don't have time to meet. I don't feel like meeting. There's nothing to meet about. So the owners were never going to allow the deadline, however artificial it may be, of February 28th to pass without constant meetings leading up to that point. 
So they're meeting about core economic issues. They're meeting about non-core economic issues. They are trying to get a deal done. But if both parties don't want a deal, you're not going to get a deal. If both parties don't believe the deadline is actually February 28th, you're not going to get a deal. If both parties aren't hanging off the cliff by their fingertips, you're not going to get a deal. So fingertip cliff hanging doesn't come from media or from fans saying it's disastrous for the sport. We can't miss games, millionaires versus billionaires. That is not actually what causes a sense of urgency amongst the negotiating parties. It is far more an internal discussion with when is it that we are willing to break? When is it that we are willing to change what we have demanded in an agreement? When are we willing to come off those positions? And if we are not ever willing to come off those positions, are we willing to bear the consequences of what it means to not come off those positions, which would be lost games, maybe a lost season, lost playoffs, or a shortened season with different sets of rules, with different parts of the agreement that you were going to get, that you're not going to get? That is what hanging from a cliff may be. So right now, today on the 28th, here we are Monday morning, do owners and players feel that sense of urgency? I say, yes, they do. And that is manifested in the fact that in recent days, players have adjusted their proposals on several of the key issues. And I want to talk to you about a few of those issues and why the owners don't view that as an actual give, but players do. As a nothing personal listener, you're very aware of arbitration. You know that arbitration is for three years when a player has between three years and six years of experience in Major League Baseball. You know that the players would like to add a fourth year of arbitration. You know that certain players already get four years of arbitration if they achieve something called Super 2 status. Super 2 is defined as players with more than two years of service but fewer than three years of service who have the top 22% of service time of all of those players with more than two and fewer than three. The players have said, we want all players with more than two and under three to get arbitration. The owners have said 22%. The players said, how about 80% of players with more than two and fewer than three with the top 80% of the service time calculation, those players being eligible. The owners said 22%. Then a few days ago, the players said, okay, we're really gonna move. How about 33%? And everybody said, my God, what a great move by the players. This is epic. They're coming way down to the owners. The owners can just creep up from 22% to 33%. It only impacts an extra 12 players being eligible for salary arbitration each year. Why wouldn't the owners meet them at that point? And then we've got a deal on this major issue between the players and the owners. And the owners responded by saying, no, we're staying at 22%. And the players, through Scott Boris, who's got five out of eight of his players on, on the executive council doing the negotiating. You've seen videos of Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole. These are Boris players who are carrying Boris's water during these negotiations. But the owners said to the players, 
more than a year ago and every day since, we are not budging on salary arbitration. We're happy to talk about all the other issues you have, but when it comes to salary arbitration, we are simply not going to do it. But the players don't accept that. Therefore, the players get to tell you, the fans, that they have made major movements, but the owners look like the bad guys. I guess I can still say bad guys, like the bad people. It's just men. So like the bad men, because they're not moving off their position. So I want to put that in different terms. When you are having a discussion and you are going to an amusement park with your family, and you don't ride roller coasters. It's not your thing. And so your family and your kids say, hey, we're not going to ride it 10 times in a row. How about eight times in a row? And you say, I don't ride roller coasters. And then your child says, I've got an idea. Let's just do it four times. That's it. And you say, I don't ride roller coasters. What don't you understand? And then your kids say, you know what? I get it, dad. I totally am with you. Come with me on the Incredible Hulk one time. That's it. And you say to your child, I told you it was no. So who's the bad guy here? The children are trying to get you to say yes to something. You are a no from the start. And they knew it from the start. How many examples in your business life or in your personal life is there what's called a non-starter? You may disagree with whether it's actually a non-starter. You may have a different view and think that it shouldn't be or should be, or think that the person's being unreasonable or that what's wrong with being on a roller coaster and you say, it hurts my tummy. Well, it shouldn't hurt your tummy, you can close your eyes. You can have conversations all you want. If your father does not want to go on a roller coaster, he's not gonna go. Therefore, it is not his fault that he has continued to take that position. That is the owner's view of arbitration. The owners have another view that's like a roller coaster, and that's revenue sharing. Revenue sharing is the way money gets from teams with a lot of local revenue that it gets distributed to teams with less local revenue. And the reason why you have revenue sharing is for competitive balance. Now, there are tons of arguments back and forth. There really are whether or not teams use their revenue sharing. We were subject to grievances that we were not using our revenue sharing. The Tampa Bay Rays are subject to grievances and are in the middle of a grievance from the union that they're not using their revenue sharing because the rule is you have to use it in order to increase your major league product to enhance your major league product. Ironically, the Rays did a way better job than we did because they kept winning games. They win 95 games using their revenue sharing dollars. So it's not just about performance on the field, apparently for players, which for me, that's all it should be about. Well, that's not true because even when you lose a hundred games, I wouldn't have wanted to lose my revenue sharing. But that said, it certainly is proof that that revenue sharing is being used properly. Even if the team is profitable, we'll talk about that. The owners have said no changes to revenue sharing. The players have said we want fewer dollars going from high revenue teams to lower revenue teams. Why would players want that? Because the more money that higher revenue teams have, in their view, the more money they have for payroll. And if they are going to use that money for payroll, it's better they do than give it to the low revenue teams who don't use the revenue sharing dollars they receive for payroll. 
the practical answer to that is when we got revenue sharing, whether it was 40 million, 50 million, $60 million, we would use it to help balance our books. We would use it to try to lessen our losses. We wouldn't take the revenue sharing, which is such a popular response and use it to, I'm trying to think of the word, let me get it straight. Oh yeah. Pocket the money. It's not revenue sharing that's actually used for profit or cash profit to pocket. It's revenue sharing used to help change the financial picture, to help you spend a little extra money internationally or on development or to hire more scouts or to increase your, uh, oh God, Coca, this is it. First one of the delayed Argentine analytics. <laughs> Woo. That's not because we didn't believe in analytics or have a big analytics department. I was thinking analysis. Analytics department, we would use some money to help bolster analytics department. Whatever the case may be, that are, those are all legal uses of revenue sharing dollars. So MLB said no changes to revenue sharing. The union has said we want changes. MLB has said no. Let's move on to other issues where MLB will be flexible. Minimum salaries. There is no agreement yet. But MLB is willing to be flexible with what the minimum is paid to the youngest players, which in theory is Max Scherzer and Scott Boris's biggest issue, wink, wink, it's not really, that younger players start getting paid more. So MLB is willing to be flexible on that. But the players are actually not flexible with where their demand started. If you look at where they currently are, they are in a place that is no better than they were months ago. Another issue. Luxury tax. You're hearing all about that. It's the third rail. Luxury tax is so big. The players want a luxury tax threshold of 245 million. The owners want it at 215 million, 222 million, raising a little bit through the five years of the agreement. And everyone's saying, why can't you just split the middle, make it at 230 million, and we go home happy because games start? That's not what the real fight is about with the collective bargaining with the owners and with the players. It's about penalties. The owners have enough votes, 23 votes, to have very large penalties for teams who go over the CBT. We're talking to you, Steve Cohn. Yes, we are. The players do not want large penalties for teams that go over. They're willing to have penalties, but they want them to be smaller because then in their view, teams will be more apt to go over the luxury tax threshold, which has been acting like a salary cap really since it started. Remember, we told you that two teams went over it this past season, but five teams went right up to the limit and then stopped, the Yankees being one of them. Players don't like that. They want teams to spend unlimited amounts of money on payroll on the high side. So the owners have flexibility with what the level is, but less flexibility with what the penalties are. Because, now keep this in mind, Rob Manford is keeping track of votes. Every issue, every day, every breakdown of every issue, he's got to keep track of the breaking point not for him as the commissioner, he wants a deal, trust me, but of the 30 owners. Because if there is an issue where eight owners say, as an example, we will vote no to ratify an agreement that has lesser penalties for teams going over the luxury tax threshold. If that's the way it is, and it very well could be because 
the Marlins would be a no on that type of ratification when I was there, then they can't MLB and Dan Hallam and Rob Manford. They cannot offer that to the players. You cannot make an offer to players that doesn't have 23 yes votes. So you have to realize what Rob is doing. He's not just doing the global negotiating. He's also negotiating with players, but negotiating with owners on all of these different issues. So we've talked about CBT. We've talked about arbitration. What about the other issues? Tanking, service time manipulation, draft lottery issues. How many teams are going to be in the lottery? They're going to do an NBA style a lottery now and try to make it a big thing on MLB network and maybe have ping pong balls or maybe have envelopes that are stuck to the bottom of the bingo wheel, whatever they're going to do. There's been an argument about how many teams are going to be in the lottery. And then there was a big thing on Saturday, two days ago on the 26th, where they said, Hey, we have an agreement. There's been great movement. But then we read that we don't really have that agreement because both owners and players are taking any commonality of interest, any place where they agree on something, they're tying that agreement to another issue. So the owners said, we'll agree to what you want, but you have to give us expanded playoffs. The players are saying, you agree to what we want, but if you agree to our movement, then you have to give us not expanded playoffs. And the reason I'm using expanded playoffs as the issue is we read late last night that there's still an argument now about the expanded playoffs for crying out loud. There's this concept that the players want of a ghost win. I have to explain this because I have been racking my brains all night where I would be on this issue. MLB wants 14 teams in the playoffs. It means a large amount of revenue because more games will be televised by national broadcasters, more fan interest happens in October, more affinity, more engagement than any other month. A ghost win means that a playoff series starts with one team winning one nothing. So picture a three-game series where you have to win two out of three, and it starts with the team with the higher seed being up one nothing in the series. So you tune in. Welcome to game one of the playoff series between the Marlins and the Phillies. And the score of the series is Marlins one, Phillies zero. Why are the players asking for that? Because the players have thought, and I have debated this with players for years. The players believe that the more teams in the playoffs, the more owners will say, eh, we don't have to spend money to get into the playoffs because we have a better chance. So let's keep our payroll down and then hope we get hot in October. And I've explained to players and to you, that is not the case. There is no owner who says, let's just maybe try to get into the playoffs like the Cardinals did. What was it, Coca? Like in 06 when they won 80 games or 83 games and they rode a really hot October to the World Series championship. It's like a unicorn. Owners will not say to a GM, listen, don't sign that middle reliever. Don't bolster our starting rotation because we're going to eke in as a wild card and that's going to be good enough. We'll get hot. The bottom line in baseball is that when you are playing a seven game series, the better team is going to win more often than the hot team. 
Now you're going to at me and say there's examples where a team just got hot and over the course of the 162 games, they were not the better team. They were the road team. They were the lower seed. But the reality is the majority of the time, the better team wins. And the better team is the one who wins the most games because baseball has 162 games. It is the ultimate equalizer. So the issue with the owners sitting in front of players and having players introduce new and different topics, new and different nuances that have not been previously vetted or discussed is that you are up against a deadline, which is today. And if that deadline passes, the owners have said, we are canceling regular season games. We're not rescheduling them. We're not playing double headers. And we are not paying you your full salaries. If we play 154, you are going to make 154, 162 of your salary, 154, 160 seconds of your salary. Meaning if you make 10 million, you're going to make less by a percentage, 5%, let's say. So here's what we're looking for. That's where we are. Here's what we're looking for today. There's going to be more negotiating. They're starting earlier than ever in Jupiter, just in a few hours. There, by the time you're listening to this, potentially, owners and players will be meeting. We don't exactly know when meetings will stop today because February 28th as a deadline could mean 11.59 p.m. It could mean they're done at 5 p.m. It could mean they meet for 20 minutes today and realize that there won't be an agreement today and the owners tell the commissioner to walk away from the table and then the commissioner meets the media and starts canceling games. If there is no agreement today, the season will not be canceled. The way MLB will do it is they will cancel a week at a time. It's what they've been doing with spring training. They canceled the first week of games. Then they canceled the next three or four days. So you could say that MLB will only cancel the first series. Maybe they'll cancel the opening series of each team as an incentive to get the players back to the table. The risk of canceling games now today is that the players may say, you know what? We're not even going to negotiate anymore. You're starting to cancel games. Now we're taking everything off the table and we're starting over. We're not giving you expanded playoffs. We're not giving you revenue associated with uniform patches or uh, uh, helmet patches. We are moving our revenue sharing requests. We're not taking them back. We are changing to, we want all players with two years of service to be eligible for arbitration. Everything that we were willing to give was to get a deal now. Therefore, there's no deal. We're stepping back. The owners may say, we didn't get a deal by today. We're going home. Dan Helm could check out of his hotel in Florida, head back to New York, and there could be no meetings for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. What I think is going to happen, and I'm going to make this an official wait to see Coca, the season will get delayed. It's what I've been telling you from the start. There will be no deal today. There will be a shortened season, but there will be October. And all of the back and forth that is making you crazy, it will all be forgotten by the time we get to what will be playoffs in October. So wait to see is when we tell you something's going to happen. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Either way, we revisit it. But wait to see. The MLB season will be delayed. There will be no deal announced today. And the owners will have to stick to what they said. Because if you set a deadline and don't stick to it, then you lose all credibility. 
Remember we talked about with player contracts or with number of years that we will not offer you more than five years period. And this is our last and final offer. And then you change it. Word gets around to agents very quickly that you don't do what you say you're going to do. Therefore, the owners have said the 28th is the deadline. It is the deadline, whether it's real or not. And I think it is. The season will be delayed. Okay, Coca. We're going to move on. I, I want to talk about a little bit what's going on in the world outside of sports. And it sort of has to do with sports. Not really, but everything has to do with sports. I really want to talk about what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. Because so many times we get lost in sports, right? We think the world revolves around sports. I've been in Argentina doing races every day for the past week up in the Andes Mountains, and I can barely feel my legs, et cetera. But I've spoken to some people locally down in Patagonia. They're not aware that there's a lockout. They're not aware that Aaron Rodgers may leave Green Bay. But you can bet your bippy that they're aware of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. So I don't feel as though I need to sum up what's happening. I want to explain why it is so dangerous and why you are seeing this unbelievable international groundswell against Russia. When there have been wars, Coke and I talked about this pre-show throughout the course of last week and up until and including today. We've talked about the fact that wars go on everywhere. There were coups going on during an AFCON game, literally. There's wars going on amongst people in African nations, wars in Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. Why all of a sudden now? Why when Putin is trying to get back Ukraine, to put it in its simplest terms, why everybody is saying no? And it's not necessarily because of energy and because of the fact of what Ukraine has in terms of energy and pipelines and fuel and gas and none of that. How scared are you of Russia conquering and getting back Ukraine. What impact does that have to you as you listen to this show? Do you say none? What impact does the coup have in an African country when there's genocide in Rwanda? Is that impacting your day? Do you differentiate the two? Are you worried that if Russia all of a sudden decides to take the Ukraine back, Annexed? Are you saying to yourself, well, what if they don't stop there? What if that continues through Europe? What if that continues with other NATO alliance countries? Are we back to a world war? Is this World War III? Believe me, after World War I, no one thought there'd be a World War II. After World War II, everyone assumed that's it. World War III was always presumed to be the final, the war to end all wars because of nuclear capabilities. Global thermonuclear war leads to the end of the world as we know it. Mutual mass destruction, not weapons of mass destruction, mutual mass destruction. Is that why you're more worried? That's why I'm more worried. That's why I'm taking a greater interest. But what does it mean to take an interest? It means to read articles. Does it mean to not support people who support Russia? Does it make a difference? Does it mean raising money for Ukrainian refugees? It could mean a little of all those things. 
but how neutered do you feel listening to this show or just in life? How out of control? If you're a control freak like I am, I'm being driven crazy by the fact that I don't know what tangible steps I can take. I don't know what to do in order to stop this war from actually impacting me, from this war escalating into something that would include the United States, that would then impact directly our freedom. So if you are in a sports capacity, if you're a fan of a sports team, or if you are a fan of certain products, or if you are a consumer, you could say that the impact that I can have is on a much more micro level. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that I boycott teams owned by Russians. I'm going to boycott any products from Russia, like vodka. I'm only going to drink non-Russian vodka. It's a start. But what if you are Roman Abramovich? What if you own an EPL team and you've got, in theory, ties to Putin? You are a Russian oligarch. You are one of the people, in theory, where Biden's sanctions and the sanctions that we are imposing upon Russia, where we're trying to freeze assets, we're trying to take assets, we're trying to stop giving them access to money while we're funding Ukraine and while we're sending them supplies and money and weapons, et cetera, to help them defend themselves. By the way, on a separate side note, did you think that the Ukraine would actually be able to withstand this Russian Influx, this Russian incremental sort of moving the front and taking over the cities. It is amazing because I thought this would be quick and dirty and done. But Ukraine has actually been able to hold the line. And now Russia may feel they can't win this. But then you have to think, how does Russia get out of this? Anyway, I digress. But once you're into something, it's sort of like a collective bargaining agreement, but it's way more important when there's war and human lives at stake. What's your exit strategy? When do you know when to give up? When do you pull a custer? Anyway, that could come not today. So Roman Abramovich owns Chelsea, definitely has a relationship with people in Russia all the way to the top, however much he denies that, which he really can't deny because he wants to help solve this issue. He announced this weekend that he is giving up control of the Chelsea football team that he has operated and owned for 19 years. And he's doing it in the best interest of fans, the best interest of players, the best interest of the EPL, and it is horse hockey. Roman Abramovich is giving up control the way Daniel Snyder gave up control of the Red Commanders. Roman Abramovich is claiming that Chelsea will now be operated by the board of trustees of the Chelsea Charitable Foundation, GMAB. You think that he's going to have absolutely no say in what's going on? You think that he's not pulling the strings and running the show? Of course, he is in every way. But he had to do it because the public pressure was so huge that he said, I can't take it anymore. There's going to be something I'm going to do that's going to pacify the fans of Chelsea. Did it work? I would think not. Of course, he's trying to broker peace. That'd be good. What do you do if you are an organization who does business in Russia, does business with Russian companies? Do you stop doing business with them? What do you do if you're a sporting organization like the ATP, tennis? They have 
tournaments in Russia? What about FIFA, where they have matches in Russia? They have a World Cup coming. I don't even know how are we going to cover this, Coca. The World Cup is going to be in Qatar as though there's no human rights violations or no atrocities going on there. But don't worry, we can have the World Cup there. But now that Russia is invading Ukraine, we are totally not doing any World Cup action in Russia. Russia can't even play under its flag. We're going to change the name of their team, and we are going to show the world that we care about the plight of the Ukrainians. That's pretty good. What's actually happening in FIFA is that teams are saying, we're not going to play the Russian national team. On a way less important level, the equivalent is that, remember these teams in college who are switching conferences? And the conferences that are being left are punishing the student athletes and saying, you're not allowed to play postseason basketball or postseason football because you're not really going to be in our conference next year. So therefore, the student athletes are saying that's not right because we didn't choose to leave the conference, but you're penalizing us. And so now FIFA is saying, Russia, we're not going to play games in Russia. You're not going to get home court advantage, home pitch advantage. Their team saying we're not going to play the Russian team at all. You've got Sweden, the Czech Republic, Poland saying we will not play Russia. And the Russian soccer players, football players are saying, is that fair? So what's your view? I'll tell you mine. Make sure you give this deep thought, though. Deep thoughts with John Handy. Give this some thought. Penalizing players. Is that different than penalizing countries? No. Because when you penalize a country, by definition, you are penalizing a player. But the IOC found a way out. We will penalize Russia for all of their doping, but we'll let the Russian athletes compete, but not under their flag. We won't play their national anthem. Is that a proportionate response? My answer is, when it comes to doping, sure. When it comes to war, not at all. The Russian players have to realize, and you're seeing a little bit of that now with some Russian tennis players writing no war with demonstrations, with even the Russian people not totally behind Putin, to say nothing of the international crowd, which of course is against what Russia's doing. But you are seeing a lack of support by even the citizens. Therefore, the Russian players understand the difference between doping and war, understand the penalties are greater for Russia, the country. There were there were no sanctions on Russia for doping. President, the President Biden, President Trump, President Bush, doesn't matter the president, doesn't matter red, blue, conservative, liberal. There's no sanctions for doping, but there's sanctions for war. And so players are getting swept up in that, and they will continue to get swept up in that. What you should look for if this continues, or if Russia does anything other than pull back and say, I'm so sorry, we never should have started this, you are going to see widespread sanctions, not just by FIFA, by the IOC, by the ATP, but you are going to see this pervasive through EPL. You'll see it in the NBA. You will see it in any sport. They will stop doing business. They will stop allowing anything Russia-related because it's just not worth it. Sponsors who control the money are saying to leagues, they're saying to teams, you better not associate yourself you better do the right thing or else we are not going to be associated with you. Right, Phil Mickelson? Right, Phil? Yeah. So get ready for that. 
All right, Coca, I don't have, because we are not in a new normal place, I think we got to go to break right now. Is that correct? So we're going to go to break. When we come back, we are going to review the SAG Awards. And I don't know how much time we have because I've got to get in to franchise economics. We will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I hope you can hear me. This is David Sampson. I'm coming to you from a hotel in Buenos Aires. My plane was delayed by 23 hours. I don't have my equipment. I'm on an iPad right now. I am using headphones. I don't know where the microphone is. I don't know whether you can hear me, but I told you I'd be back on February 28th, and I'm back. Thank you for rating and reviewing and for making February another record month for Nothing Personal. Keep telling your friends about it. Keep listening. Well, last night was the SAG Awards. We are in award season. So I just want to say in two minutes something about the SAG Awards and what happened. You may not be interested in it, but you should be. Because it's sort of a precursor to the Oscars and there were no Golden Globes of note. So it was very, very interesting to see what SAG would do. And remember, Screen Actors Guild. This is not Best Director. This is not Best Film. So the equivalent of Best Picture went to CODA but they called it the best ensemble. Then you had TV awards, where in the Oscars you only have movie awards. So the summary is, Coda won. Will Smith got his first by beating out Andrew Garfield for best actor. Jessica Chastain won best actress for the eyes of Tammy Faye. Ted Lasso keeps winning. Succession keeps winning. Squid Game won acting awards, which it should have. But what about supporting actor? I'm going to ask one more time. We were ready to review this. Please watch Coda. Can we stop with that, Coca, and just say watch Coda? Okay. Do you know I have no mute button here? So if I just have to cough, I'm not sure what I do. Oh, I think if I hit this, that might work. I don't know if that worked, but we'll see. Okay, Coca. I won't be able to hear the music, but this was a So You Want to Talk to Samson. So how do you want to do it? You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So You Want to Talk to Samson. That is when you get on Twitter at David P. Samson, get into my Twitter and ask a question, and I will answer it if it's timely and if I want to. Coca, how much time do I have to answer this question? If you could just tell me right now, that would be amazing. Because here's the question. What is up with you and passing? 
All right. Did you think I was going to hide from this? Now, if you're not on Twitter, you have no idea what happened. Jeff Passan is a reporter for ESPN. He is someone who fancies himself an MLB insider. He is someone who truly does not have any pull within Major League Baseball. He gets information from people because they are using him to get what they want out. So when you read articles, when you hear things, you are getting things spun. Jeff Passan released, because it's public, the documents and the financials for the Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves are a team that is publicly owned. Liberty Media is the owner, and they actually spun off the company. And so the financials for the Braves more or less are available. The financials showed that the Braves in 2021 made what everyone thought was a huge profit, a nine-figure profit, over $100 million. Then it showed that the Atlanta Braves make $6 million per game played. 81 home games, that's a lot of revenue for a home game. And it was released, not coincidentally, so that everyone would say, look how rich owners are. Look how much money these teams make. And I sent a very simple tweet, which was, hey, guys, these documents and these financials are not all that they appear to be. It is far more complicated to understand the financial situation of a team than looking at a snapshot of a document that shows what appears to be operating income. And then Jeff Passon said to me, well, if you know the teams lose money, why don't you name the teams? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we lost money because we did in 14 of our 16 years with the Marlins or that the Yankees lose money every year, but they make money from ancillary revenue and from owning their network, but their team actually loses money or that the Rays make money some years, lose money some years, depending on what their payroll is. Or that the Pirates, because all of you think that Bob Nutting is not a good owner because they haven't won and he's taking his revenue sharing and he's all profitable. I am telling you, I sat in owners meetings for 18 years. I saw the financials for all 30 teams. I know exactly how much money teams made or didn't make. And in all of my years from 2000 to 2017, covering 18 seasons, there was not one year where 30 teams made money. Some years, 20 teams did. Some years, 15 teams did. Some years, 24 teams did. In the beginning of my time, in the early 2000s, it was economic ruin. There were way more than 20 teams losing money every single year on an operating basis. And it drove Bud Selig absolutely insane because the view was that we were using too much of our money on payroll, making it so there was no way we could ever make money. And the view has always been, if you're going to own a team, why wouldn't you want to make money? And there are plenty of owners who go into a season knowing they're going to lose money, but they want their payroll high enough. Let me give you an example, folks. Do you think the New York Mets make money with the payroll they're going to have this year? No. It is a guaranteed loss. But then people say, Steve Cohn's a billionaire. He can afford to lose money. And I say, that's not the question that I was addressing. The fact of the matter is the Mets will lose money even with 162 games in 2022. I guarantee it. 
because there's no way the Mets revenue has increased from what I knew it was in 2017, especially because the Mets under their new owner, he doesn't even own the network the way the Wilpons did. But even when an owner owns a network, it doesn't mean they own the whole network. They own a percentage and there's debt on the network. There's expenses. So my point was, you don't have all the info, Jeff. That's all I'm trying to say. Forbes, when they release the team valuations, they don't have all the info. When you run a simple team like the Marlins, and I will admit it, first of all, I'm not going to get into nepotism. I've told you that a hundred times. Yes, I was hired by my stepfather, Jeff Lurie, to run the team. I was not kept by him if I hadn't been able to do it, but I'm not going to defend my record. I'm not going to get into it because that is not worthy of this conversation. Oh, wait a minute. I was the only stepfather, stepson. Yeah, I don't think there was any other team that had owners and their families involved. I don't think there's any other family businesses anywhere in the world. I'm trying to think. No, I don't think fathers and sons ever work together or mothers and daughters. No, that'd be cr totally crazy. Definitely not. So yes, I'm the only one who ever did that. Where was I, Coca? Oh yeah, my situation with the Marlins. We had a very simple financial picture. We didn't own our network. We had a deal with Fox Sports that would give us money to broadcast our games. We didn't own our facility. We paid rent to pro player. We had revenue that would come from signage, revenue that would come from tickets, revenue that would come from baseball. Baseball, Major League Baseball, would give us central fund revenue. They'd give us revenue sharing. And then we would have expenses. Expenses would be salaries of every employee, including players. Expenses to operate your team, what you would refer to as overhead. And then we would do a financial projection, a budget, like you do when you're running your household. And at the end of the budget process, we would say to the owner, if your payroll is $50 million, if our revenue assumptions are correct, then you will have an extra $5 million at the end of the year. If our revenue projections are incorrect and we don't have as many fans in the stands, or something happens with revenue sharing where we don't get what we were budgeted to get in revenue sharing, instead of having $5 million at the end of the year, you're actually going to have to write a check for $5 million because we're going to be $10 million short. We would then relook at our payroll. We would relook at our budget all throughout the season. We would look at where attendance was. We would look at where other teams' attendance was because other teams' revenue impacts the amount of revenue we would get. The budget is a living document. Isn't that like your budget too? Every company where you work or even in your household, aren't you always looking to see are there extra expenses we didn't count on? Were there things that happened that were positives? Now we've got a little more money. How many times have you heard owners and presidents say, we are taking on money at the trade deadline? Or we're not taking on money, we're shedding money. Because the best way to balance your budget and the fastest way is payroll. Because if you trade a player making $1 million, that is an immediate savings because your revenue is not going to go down by getting $1 million fewer in expenses. It's way better to trade one player than to fire 50 people in your front office whose salaries add up to that million dollars. Doesn't it make total sense to you? 
that throughout the course of a year, you are adjusting what you do? Doesn't it make sense to you that owners decide whether or not they want to write a check at the end of the year? But then the argument comes, why wouldn't the owners write checks? If you write a check, I promise your team has appreciated it in value. Therefore, it's been a great investment. Let me explain that for one second, if you don't mind. When the Marlins were going to lose $20 million, I said to Jeffrey, where are you getting the $20 million from? Are you going to sell a Picasso? Are you going to borrow the money? Are you going to get it from your checkbook? And he'd say, well, can the team borrow any more money? And I would say, yes. And he would say, do that. So the team would go to the bank where we'd have a line of credit, where we'd have debt capacity, and we'd say, give me 20 extra million dollars. We put that $20 million under a sources and uses of capital, because when you are losing money, you have to come up with a way to fund those losses. It's like in your own personal life. If you have to pay rent, you have to find the money to pay rent. You could take the money, cash advance from your credit card. You could get a mortgage if you own your apartment or your house and try to pay for your maintenance or pay for your expenses that way. You could go to work and get a payday loan, an advance on your paycheck, an advance on future revenue, or you could take from your savings. So there's an amount of money you're going to lose. Then there's where's that money going to come from in order to cover those losses. So teams increase their debt to cover losses and media people and fans say, who cares about that? They'll make that money back. Now let me explain what happens when you sell a team. Everybody has said the Marlins, Jeffrey bought the Marlins for 158 million and sold them for 1.2 billion. Oh my God, he walked away with over $1 billion. That's not real life. 1.2 billion is something called an enterprise value. From that, you have to subtract debt. So if your debt is 500 million, that means you get 1.2 billion from Bruce Sherman, but then you take the first 500 million and you give that back to the bank where you borrowed it from. Then you calculate how much money you invested in your team, whether it was 50 million, 80 million, what about the extra 20 million of losses that came not from team debt, but from your own personal debt? You add up all of that money, and let's say it comes up to 300 million. Now you're getting back 700, you paid 300, that's a profit of 400. Yes. Wait a minute, there's taxes. You've got to take away taxes because you've got to pay the government. So let's say you use, lose 50% to taxes, just round numbers. Then you say, 200 million. And you say to yourself, my God, what a great investment. You bought a team in 2000 for 158 million. That, those numbers are not accurate, by the way. And you sold it for 1.2 billion, but you ended up making a net of 200 million. I'm not giving you these numbers because they're right, because that's up to Jeffrey to tell you, not for me. I'm telling you that it's way deeper than just saying, you buy for 158, you sell for 1.2 billion. You lose 20 million, you increase the debt of the team. Who cares? You get it back when you sell. You don't get it back when you sell because you have to give that $20 million back to the person you borrowed it from. So I would always say to Jeffrey, it's totally up to you. I believe that the team will appreciate this $20 million that you're losing. 
So I think this year we will be even for the losses we have. But then it's totally up to the owner. It's not up to the fan. It's not up to the player. Just like it's not up to you as your employee. You're an employee. You can't tell your employers to make less money, to pay you more. It doesn't work that way. People start businesses to make money, not just on what the value is, but on an annual basis as well. And the fact that a number of teams do not make money, that doesn't mean it's a bad investment. It just means that you've got to come up with that money to cover your expenses from somewhere. So Jeff Past and I go back and forth and everyone gets all hopped up. I don't know why it's personal with Jeff. It's not personal between me and Jeff. Jeff has had a, had a thing for me for 20 years. I'm not sure why. I've never even met the guy. But to answer your question, there's nothing from my standpoint up with Passon. I don't give him one thought, literally. And neither does anyone else in Major League Baseball. But that is a little primer on franchise economics, a little primer on all of these definitions. When you see that the Atlanta Braves are making all this money, $6 million a game, can you please know better, be smarter. You got to see what the expenses are. They're not getting $6 million in cash, like in their pocket per game. You know that. I'm not going to insult you. All right. I expect to be back in New York tomorrow morning in time to do the show. It's another wait to see because if the plane is further delayed, I could be stuck here longer. Thank you for sticking with me, knowing that you can't hear me as well or see me as well. I appreciate it. Coca sort of appreciates it because he has to do much more work on the audio, I think. Remember, when it comes to franchise economics, when it comes to collective bargaining, it's just business. This is nothing personal. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.